Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Hi, and welcome back to Bloomberg Benchmark, a show about the global economy. Today is November 9th, and it is the day after Election Day in the U.S. So obviously, we're going to be talking about what a Trump president means for both the U.S. economy and all over the world. So I'm here with Dan and Scott, just us, just the Benchmark team today. And uh, we're going to try to hit all of the major topics we're going to talk about. Mexico, China, EU, but let's just jump in. All right, Dan, first question I want to ask you. Trump is sitting in the Oval Office. It's his first economic briefing as the president of the United States. What does the world look like? What do they tell him? The first thing he confronts is that he is a prisoner of the 2 to 3% world. So what do we mean by that? We mean continued projections ever since the world economy began growing again that it would grow between 2% and 3%. These are IMF numbers published twice a year. Stephen Pollard, as the governor of the Bank of Canada, calls this 2 to 3% world the world of serial disappointment. <laughs> we just can't seem to break through it. 2% for the advanced economies, 3% for everyone else. It's just been unyieldingly the same. Okay, and so that's what they're going to tell him? That's what he will find. Okay. And is that a disappointment? Is that a? I don't. I don't. I guess I'm trying to figure out. Is that going to be in, in the a wor- problem? In, well, look. In the world we live in, okay, okay, no one economy swims alone. Now, the United okay. States is the largest, still by quite a considerable margin, but it is only one. And you know, many, many, many U.S. corporations are part of this global supply chain which spans the world, we're influenced by China, Japan, Germany, and we influence them probably more than they would care to recognize. But you just can't swim alone. No GDP is an island. Got it. So he's going to realize that the world is perhaps more he's connected. He's a prisoner of <laughs> a 2 a to 3% serial disappointment. Okay. Moving over to Mexico, that was uh, a country that Trump brought on brought up quite a bit during the campaign. And a few weeks ago on Benchmark, we spoke about what Mexican trade actually looks like after a trip that Dan went on to Selecto, which of course is a Mexican department store. And just in case you weren't listening to that episode, we looked at where the goods in Mexico actually come from, and quite a bit were from the U.S. So, Scott, can you talk about how you can actually untangle that? Well, look, this is a deep deep trading relationship that benefits both sides. Uh, The U.S. exports to Mexico uh, in the first nine months of this year totaled $172 billion, which makes it the second largest destination behind Canada. And and overall worldwide uh, for trade, it's the third biggest trading partner of the U.S. behind Canada and China. So it's, it's not going to be easy. I mean, it's still possible that uh, you know, Trump, especially if he has the support of Congress, could potentially withdraw from NAFTA uh, with six months written notice. And, you know, that would obviously affect Canada as well. But you have so many different products, so many companies that have located in Mexico. Uh, I, I was reading one story that said it's almost it's almost like it's a, a continuous economy in some ways between the U.S. and Mexico. So right. uh, as much as Trump wants to build a wall 
and and change the relations in that way, uh, it, it's going to be really wrenching to completely upend that that relationship economically. But if Trump is indeed just hell bent on dissolving these relationships, what can Dan tell me about what he can actually do without congressional approval, just kind of in the privacy of his new. Oval Office. Quite a lot, according to Gary Huffbauer of the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington. For example, uh, the president can proclaim additional duties to maintain what are called reciprocal concessions with Canada and Mexico. He can impose import restrictions after finding some kind of national security risk. He can impose a maximum 15% tariff or some kind of other restriction for 150 days. No national security investigation is required there. After a foreign country is perceived to be restricting US commerce, the president can take retaliatory action. And there's this thing called Trading with the Enemy Act, 1917. Trading which, with the Enemy? This is the name of a trade agreement, not a movie. It's like sleeping with the enemy. This is the name the of enemy, an act of Congress. Now, okay. the date, 1917, says okay. it all. We've got to go back to World War One, Woodrow Wilson. Uh, but anyway, according to that, the president has very broad wartime powers to regulate all forms of international commerce, seize and freeze foreign assets. Now, here's the tricky thing. Statute does not actually define what war is. Oh, so there's... Okay. And, of course, we've spoken so much about the wall, and that's, of course, what he meant by Mexico pays for the wall. It's through these prohibitive tariffs and duties that could be placed, you know, via all of those. No, I think he literally means... (laughs) The Mexican government would pay for the physical construction. I, I think we need to move on because there's no way we can talk about the wall and everyone. That, that they I think about. he meant. How about this? What he has said he meant. Okay. In the campaign, is that the Mexican government or Mexican corporations would pay for the construction of that wall? There's just so much to unpack in the wall. I'd say let's move to a a different wall in the world, the Great Wall of China. How's that for a segue, Dan? Do you like that? Well, you know, China got a lot of attention from Donald Trump during the campaign, and to be fair, not just him. Mm-hmm. Uh, nevertheless, he is the winner. So, but this is a very different type of China, uh, and an economic relationship with China than he's that he's inheriting compared with what President Obama inherited from George W. Bush. At this point in 2008, China was not the world's second largest economy. Japan was. Um, Where was it on the list? It was number three. It was number three, okay. After us and Japan. Okay. Now, look, it's true that China's economy is much bigger, but in some ways, China's economic challenges are greater. So the years of double-digit economic growth in China appear to be behind us. We've settled into this growth of 6 or 7%, number mm. one. Number two, it's an economy that we is increasingly it, dominated by services and consumption. Very few American companies are going to go to Guangdong and open a furniture factory or a because t-shirt Because it's expensive, factory. right? Wage bills are going up and up in China, okay? Um, and the vaunted Chinese current account surplus, which includes merchandise trade surplus, was 10% of China's GDP when Barack Obama was elected. It's now about 3%. And according to IMF forecasts, by the time the 2020 election rolls around, it might not exist at all. Oh, and by the way, this manipulation thing... I want to ask you about that. Right. So if China's manipulating its currency now, 
It's about preventing it from falling faster. The Chinese <laughs> currency has been weakening, not stronger. So in response to the concerns of manufacturing, does Donald Trump want a weaker Chinese currency? Because that's what would happen if China was uh, ordered or told to butt out of FX intervention. I don't know if he wants a weaker Chinese currency. Whatever, whatever he wants is for the U.S. to win, you know, and he can define that winning whatever he, whenever he finds the, the facts in the end, right? <laughs> okay, that's great. But if China's manipulating its currency now, and he says he'll say that day one, mind you, we've sort of heard that before. Nevertheless, if he goes ahead and does that, it would be because China is intervening to stop the yuan weakening further. If your economy is softer, your currency is not going to appreciate, right? If so I take, right now, the tendency is for the yuan to depreciate. If I take the extreme devil's advocate position, Dan, you could say that going way back to you know 10 or 20 years ago, China has, has net manipulated its currency downward and and thus Trump still wants China to pay for that and should uh, unwind its reserves even more to strengthen the yuan to where it presumably should be. Yeah, and that's a popular view. But I guess the impression that we should leave our listeners with is this is a very different kind of Chinese economy that Donald Trump's inheriting compared with the one Barack Obama inherited from George W. It's not, even led, by, fact, it's not even led by exports and investment anymore. It's, I mean, it's really shifted in a large part to consumers and uh, um, services. I mean, you know when you go there, and I lived there for three years, it's just you know everywhere. You, you still have the factories, but you just have such a consumer economy. Look, now. China is littered with rust belts. I visited one of them myself, where steel manufacturers have moved on to find something cheaper and something more cost effective. And this is within China. I mean, it's a very different type of economic beast. Regardless than of the fact that he was campaigning on a platform I shouldn't that say made beast. It sound very different same. kind of economic animal than it was. Tiger. It's a tiger just <laughs> say it. Yeah. But regardless of the fact that he was campaigning on this platform that, as if China hadn't changed since 2008. So well, that and that's the He was campaigning on what is largely a caricature of the way the Chinese economy was and what sort of sticks in the popular imagination. You know, I was at an event at the Asia Society not so long ago where we in the audience were told that most top US journalists have never been to China. I found that pretty amazing and pretty frightening. Let's hope they're not writing about national security or economics. Let's hope. We're going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor. And when we get back, we're going to be talking about some of the economic implications back at home. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome back. Uh, so we've traveled around the world. We've looked at Mexico. We've looked at China. So let's talk about what happens actually back home. I mean, we've been talking about a lot of bringing back manufacturing jobs. I mean, Scott, how can he actually do that? That's a good question, and we really, you know, it really remains to be seen whether, you know, it'll really take some 
uh, either bullying of manufacturers or major tax incentives or you know some some something that we don't really know about that that would actually um, help create those jobs. I mean, they've come down so far from where they were, say, 30 years ago. They've barely grown under Obama, and, and he's gotten some credit for uh, helping return some of those jobs. But the bottom line is that, you know, you talk to almost any economist, and they'll say it's going to be really tough to bring back, you know, jobs, the manufacturing jobs to where they were in the 70s, say, even though there's this mystique about it that, you know, this is this is what will make America great if we can bring back those jobs. But, uh, you know, Trump has actually pledged to create 25 million jobs. There are just under 8 million unemployed people in the in the country. So, you know, you have to look at how he's going to take people out of the labor force. Uh, I, mean, I mean, who are out of the labor force and back put them back in. Uh, you know, that would potentially make up some of those jobs. But, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, tax. I think I think he's heavily relying on the uh, proposals to have to cut corporate taxes that would uh, perhaps help spur uh, investment. And this diminishing relative importance of manufacturing, by the way, the U.S. is not the only one where this is happening. This is happening right around the Western world and in some cases parts of the Eastern world. It's certainly true of the U.K. It's probably true of Germany. It's probably true of Japan. And, you know, as we said, China is now a services and consumption economy. It's no longer dominated by manufacturing and exports. I mean, like you just mentioned, China has its own rust belt, just the way we do. I mean, it's it's not unique to the U.S. It's, it's just, um, I mean, one, one other thing he mentioned, too, was talking about infrastructure, bringing, you know, kind of improving those, you know, the crumbling bridges and roads that we keep hearing so much about. I mean, Dan, how plausible is that, is the plan that he's proposed? Okay, well, now comes the tough part. You've got to translate what you say in the campaign to actual government policy. And then, depending on what that is, you've got to get something passed. I mean, this was going to be true of Hillary Clinton as well, if she were the winner. Okay, but look, let's take it at face value. Some infrastructure spending, a massive tax cut. Well, that could translate into quite a fiscal boost at a time when the unemployment rate is already quite low and monetary policy is quite easy. That could be quite a boost, whether it gets us to the three or four percent that he said he wants to get to is another question. And whether it's actually long lasting or, or something that's just temporary and results in temporary construction jobs. You know, it has to be uh, spent very smartly in a way that would encourage future development, I would suppose. And if you look at the way U.S. financial markets are performing today, never mind the swoon last night, performing today, they're behaving as if there will be some kind of boost to the economy from the fact that the same party controls the White House and both houses of Congress. Meaning that... The prospects for some fiscal expansion are there. Great. So there actually might be maybe a bright side to what happened last night in the U.S. Well, I don't want to characterize it as good or bad. What the markets are telling you is that there is a decent prospect of some fiscal stimulus. Okay. Dan, Scott, thank you so much for giving your your wonderful insights on what the global economy might look like now that Donald Trump is our president-elect. Thanks for joining us on Benchmark. You can find us on Bloomberg.com, iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and a few others. Um, While you're there, take a moment to rate and review the show so that more listeners can find us. 
And you can follow me on Twitter at the real Daniel Moss. Just joking. <laughs> at Daniel Moss DC. And, and I'm at, at Scott Landman, L-A-N-M-A-N. And I'm just by Kate Smith. <laughs> There's no just there. See you next week. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.